So this morning, the message is called Getting Caught Up. We're continuing our Return of the King series today. And we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13 in your Bibles. And you can see on the back of your bulletin, you have all these scriptures that will be referenced today. And for the past two weeks, we've been learning about Jesus' second coming. We've been alluding to it. We've been talking about it. And in Revelation 22, he said he's going to be coming. And we believe what Jesus has to say. And so we know that he will be coming soon. So what Jesus' second coming is supposed to do for us as his followers is give us something to look forward to. Give us something to focus on other than the chaos that we see around us. We, it's an assurance that we have that one of these days we get to go home. An example of something to look forward to. How many people know what December 11th of this year represents? What holiday is this? It should become a national holiday. It's not yet, but it's my nursing school graduation. <laughs> 222 days and a wake up. Not that I'm counting. I've been in this process for three years, and hopefully I pass my finals in a few weeks and the two exams I have in the morning. And if, if so, December 11th will be the day I get to look forward to finally, finally being a registered nurse. So all those sleepless nights, all the work, all the stress, all the blisters on my back end from sitting at my desk for hours and hours studying will finally be worth it. I want you to stop for a moment and think about something that you're either looking forward to now or that in the past you may have looked forward to. And then how you felt when you finally got to that point to experience it or have it. Maybe you were a soldier coming home. Maybe you were a pregnant mom finally birthing their babies. Fathers, maybe it was your kids graduating high school and leaving home. Whatever it was, when you finally got to that moment, you kind of just went, oh, that is so nice. Of all the wondrous abilities God has given us as humans, one of the biggest is our capacity to think about the future. That makes us unique amongst all the other creations on earth because they generally don't look forward. They do things by instinct, but they don't really look forward to anything. Human beings, we can do that. We can anticipate things that are coming. And one of those things, those, that, those defense mechanisms, if you will, that we can have that can help us to get us through bad times is that ability to look to tomorrow, to look toward a later day, to know that if I can just get through today, it's going to get better tomorrow. This may be why God in his word told us so often what his coming back will be like. The Bible says that on the day that Jesus returns, all who know him are going to be caught up in it. And that's the phrase that Paul uses to describe what happens to humans when Jesus returns. We all get caught up. This is exactly what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them 
in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And Father, I ask, Lord, that these words will indeed comfort us today. They'll give us something to look forward to. There'll be something that when, the, when life grows dark, when it just seems that all of hell is coming against us, that we get to hold on to this and say, Maranatha, Jesus, come quickly, Lord. We are so looking forward to meeting you. So, Father, just prepare our hearts to receive your word this morning. Help it to encourage us, renew us, reinvigorate us, and resend us out into a world to tell them about the grace and love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, how many of you, I'm, how old am I now? 51 years old. I remember being able to do athletic things when I was younger. One of the things I loved to do the most was jump. We used to have fences in our neighborhood. They're about, you know, about this high. Believe it or not, I used to be able to run at it and do a flip in midair into a handspring on the other side and then keep running. I used to be able to do things like that and not cause an earthquake. So it was, a, you know, it was pretty cool. I could, I could be running from anybody and fences were no object. I would just flip over the thing. I remember jumping. You know, after... Jumping was one of my favorite things. Acrobatics, I loved to, to do flips and all that. And I thought I was pretty good at it until my parents split up and I, they moved away from each other. And since the money was gone, we moved into what some people would politely call a very economically disadvantaged area. Something in Kenosha we would call it the hood. I was a boy in the hood. And in the hood, there, was there wasn't baseball diamonds. There wasn't anything. The only game that you could really play on the playground was basketball. There was always a basketball hoop around. And for a short kid like me, basketball was not my sport. I was okay at dribbling, but shooting, no. Just about everybody around me was taller than I was, could jump higher than I could. And in fact, when I'd be guarding someone, they'd be going like Michael Jordan, like, boom, slam dunk right in front of me. And they'd be like, what are you going to do? You know, that kind of thing. That's, that, that's how I grew up, was um, being dunked on all the time. And I used to dream. I would actually have dreams about being able to jump that high and dunk on people. Anybody here able to slam dunk? I'm just curious. Okay. So you, you, you understand some of my pain. Now imagine being able to jump or rise up off the ground with ex without exerting any effort. Just simply floating upward. That's what's going, to be, what's going to happen at the moment of Jesus' return. We're going to be caught up, the Bible says. The original language means to be seized or snatched up with a sudden swoop. The language is speaking of, if you've, if you've had small children and you live near a major highway, and they start running toward the highway and there's all kinds of cars whipping back and forth, you're not going to politely say, oh, Timmy, can you come over here quickly? 
No, you're going to run after them and grab and snatch them before they run out into that traffic. That's the kind of language that's being used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 here. It's a snatching and suddenness of, of being lifted here off of the earth. But I think we're going to have a little bit of time left. And between now and then, you and I are going to go through many days that can feel like the coming of winter. You know, we enjoy the summer, we go into the fall, we go into that glorious, blessed, incredible season called deer hunting. But then the temperatures, they start to get colder and our days get shorter. But God gave us this promise to get us through those kinds of times to look forward to that we can live in hope and anticipation. So during this third installment of our Return of the King series, I want to walk you through a timeline leading up to the minute of Christ's return. I want to show you what that return will be like, how you'll experience it if you're still alive. And I want to show you on the timeline of history when most biblical scholars believe that time is going to happen. Now when we talk about end times, I know that many people can have this trepidation in their heart, this, this kind of fear because we, we don't know what's going to happen, we just know it doesn't look good. But Jesus tells us to look forward in anticipation of this time because you know what? I've read the end of the book. He wins. And if he wins, we win. So what can the devil possibly do to us? Now keep that in mind as we continue, because in order to understand what the return of Christ will be like, it's helpful to understand the when his return will be. And we're not going to set a date, we're not going to set an hour, but we can see when he's going to return within a prophetic timeline of the three major time periods we've already seen that will take place in the last days. Now, it's going to have a little bit of math here, but trust me, I've worked it out. It's accurate. There's three time periods that describe the end of the days. And he put these in here, I believe. I believe God put these in there just to show the exactness of biblical prophecy and that you can trust it. First thing we're going to look at is the tribulation. And you can read about it in Matthew 29, 24 and Daniel chapter 9. Uh, 24 through 27. We're going to look at these in depth. Now Matthew 24, 29 says, immediately after the distress of those days. Now that word distress means tribulation. That's where we get that word from. Jesus is talking about a, a time that is going to come upon the earth that is going to, to be very, very hard on many people. Now if the book of Revelation is a roadmap to our future. The book of Daniel is its commentary. If you look at a, a roadmap, you see that it has lines and symbols and everything else, but somewhere down in that lower corner, there's a little um, area that is the legend or the key to understand what those symbols mean. And the book of Daniel does that for the book of Revelation. And the prophet Daniel first described the tribulation period way back in, in history, 600 years before Jesus was born. Daniel gave his prophecies. About 700 years before John saw the revelation and wrote it down. 
So that's just incredible. Almost a millennia has passed, and yet John is able to predict and, and go into further detail of what Daniel saw. So Daniel says in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, 24, he said, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now, who he's talking about here is the Jewish people. He's talking specifically to them. Remember, biblical prophecy has nothing to do with America. It has nothing to do with any other nation really than Israel. Remember a few weeks ago I said when you were interpreting biblical prophecy, you have to consider what it means for the nation of Israel because it's focused pretty much on them. Even though we're Gentiles, God loves us just as much as he loves them. When it comes to the prophetic, we look to Israel first. That's the first point. The second point is in Hebrew language and thinking and writing, they always start with a truth statement. Okay, they always start with a premise, and then everything that follows is to support that premise. And the same thing is right here. So he talks to them here about 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city, and then he goes and tells them why. He says to bring rebellion to an end to put a stop to sin, to atone for inequity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, meaning to bring it all to an end, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, Daniel is unique in the Bible in that it was not written in Hebrew or Greek, it was written in Aramaic. That was a language of the Chaldeans where, where Daniel was living at that time, otherwise known as Babylon. So in Aramaic, these word weeks literally means sevens. That was their word. It was just simply say sevens meant a week to them. Daniel was saying that God was going to do some transforming work for the Jewish people for a period of 70 sevens. Now remember that at 70 so, follow along, we'll do some math in the next few verses. Verse 25. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay. said he will rebuild it with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. So 77s plus 62 sevens. If you chart this in history, and whether it's biblical or, or secular history, this will line up for you, especially when you consider lunar calendar versus solar calendar. This lines up very well. So following the Babylonian exile of the Jews, Artaxerxes decrees that Nehemiah should return to Jerusalem to build it. We have that date set in history, so we know exactly when it was going to be. In the book of Nehemiah, he said that he and his people rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem in a miraculous 56 days. Keep in mind they're doing this with hand tools, and they built a very large wall. 56 days. But the rest of the rebuilding of the city took 49 years. So we talked about that 1-7. 7 times 7, 49 years. Now, Artaxerxes issued his decree in 457 B.C. Daniel continues, he said, After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. 
says that in Daniel 9.26. This is a prediction of the Messiah's first coming and his eventual death for us. Now the decree in 457 B.C., if you add the 49 years to refinish the rebuilding, you get to 408 B.C. Remember, we go backwards when we go to B.C. So now we're at 408 B.C. If you go 62 weeks times 7, that's 434 years. 408 B.C. plus 434 is 26 A.D., the year that Jesus began his public ministry. Pretty cool, huh? This just goes to show you the accuracy of biblical prophecy. The, Daniel continues with the second half of verse 26. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood until the, the end there will be war and desolations are decreed. The coming ruler that we believe that Daniel was talking about was the Roman emperor Titus who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its sanctuary in 70 A.D. Wiped it out. Titus had enough of the Jewish rebellions and he just said go and wipe them out. He gave an order that said that not one brick should be left upon another. So he gave the order to the Roman legions to literally demolish everything. Jerusalem at that point was a pile of rubble because every brick was torn down. So we're at 69 sevens. Remember I said there are 70. So where's this last one? Daniel said in, 20, in, in verse 24 that 70 weeks were decreed for God to deal with his people. The 70th week is reserved for another ruler, a ruler that is yet to come. We know in biblical prophecy that this coming ruler is the Antichrist. We will know him when he does the following. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week or seven years. That's in verse 27. That's how we know the tribulation will last seven years. From the time he signs that peace treaty with Israel to ensure their security, there will, the prophetic clock starts up. We have seven years left. Daniel told, that, told us that 2,500 years ago. To complete this prophecy, Daniel says, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be in the wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Now there is a law of double fulfillment here. This, this prophecy was semi-fulfilled during the Hellenistic period of, of Israel, when, the, when Alexander the Great conquered Israel, the Greeks ruled over that area. And one of their um, prefects, if you will, or generals, Antiochus Epiphanes, came in and sacrificed and defiled the temple by sacrificing a pig in the Holy of Holies. We believe that the Antichrist will do the exact same thing once that temple is rebuilt and declare himself God, and that's when the mark of the beast and all of that kind of stuff come into play. So that will happen at the middle of the week, or the middle of the seven, three and a half years into the tribulation. And that will start the Great Tribulation. 
Because again, the Antichrist will stop people from worshiping God and force people to worship him or die. We'll cover that a little bit more next week. And I bring all of this up, all this detail up, all this kind of, it seems almost kind of mind-blowing stuff, just to show you can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible for past history and the accuracy it had in the past that it can predict the future concerning the end times. I mentioned in the beginning, we have some incredible, incredible things to look forward to. And here is what has been called the blessed hope of the Christian. So let's talk again about the great catching up or the rapture of the church. One day Jesus is going to burst forth in the clouds in glory. So what's that going to be like for us if we are living during that time? Well, there are several passages in the New Testament that describe it for us. We read part of 1 Thessalonians 4. We read a snippet of it then, but now I'll read the whole passage. It's a very familiar verse to some, but I'll read it because if you're a Christian, this is something we need to be looking forward to and, to, and be willing to tell others about. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by the word from the Lord. In other words, Jesus told Paul this exactly, spiritually, and told him to tell us. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God specifically spoke to Paul and told him exactly what is going to happen to the church as the Antichrist rises. He doesn't want us to be uninformed. So what will that return be like? Well, the first thing we learn from verse 16 is that the Lord will descend. Jesus comes down in the clouds. If you remember, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. His disciples are sitting there staring up into the sky, wondering what to do now. When two angels appear to them and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand, up, look, stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. Someday soon, he's going to descend back toward the earth. At that time, he'll give a loud command, after which the archangel will verbally summon all believers who have died and are waiting for 
in a temporary heaven for our physical body. Our loved ones who've died in the Lord are alive right now in the presence of Jesus. Remember, we are spiritual beings having a fleshly existence. Okay, we're a spirit inside of a body. They exist as a spirit right now in the presence of Jesus, their true nature. At that point, those natures will be recombined. They'll receive a new heavenly body at that time. As the archangel commands those dead believers to arise, he'll blow his trumpet, and at that sound, the dead in Christ will rise, similar to the way that Jesus rose on Easter. And those who are, who are dead will have physical bodies that are like, but not exactly like, their, their previous bodies. You know, a lot of people say, well, how can Jesus raise people from the dead who, who were destroyed in a bomb or a fire or they, they sank in a boat and have been fish food for hundreds of years? You know, how, how could he reassemble that? Well, keep in mind that he said, let there be light and spun the world in, or the universe into existence. Putting together a body isn't too hard for him. Okay? So when Jesus rose from the dead... The disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him at first, but they did recognize who he was eventually. At that instant, in an instant after all the dead believers assemble above their resting places, the alive in Christ will rise. That means you and I. If we are alive when this happens, we begin to rise. You won't need a Superman cape or an Iron Man suit. You know, one of my favorite dreams I always I ever have is the ability to be able to fly. Anybody have a dream where they can fly? I have. I love being able to fly. You know how that would cut my commute time down? <laughs> God will suspend those kind of gravitational laws for us so we ascend like Jesus ascended 2,000 years ago. Within less than a second, we'll meet Jesus in the clouds. You say, well, why is Jesus staying in the clouds? Well, in Roman times, when a general conquered a city, he didn't enter it immediately. He assembled his entourage outside the city and waited for those within the city to go in or to go out and meet their new leader. And then they would have a parade coming back in, ushering the new king of that area. That's a picture that God is painting for us here. So you might ask, okay, well, now we're raptured. Now what? what, what what's it going to be like in eternity? Am I still going to have arthritis? Am I still going to have bad teeth? Am I going to have aches and pains, body odor, bad breath? Do I need glasses anymore? Or bifocals, in my case. Stronger and stronger bifocals as I get older. Here's a, here's a question. Are we going to have hair growing where we don't want it to grow? One of the questions I want to ask God, God, what is this thing with ear hair? It serves no purpose. I have hair growing on the end of my nose. It serves no purpose. And he's just going to tell me sin. <laughs> I know that's going to be the answer. You know, a lot of us have hair growing where we don't want it, and other people have hair that they can't grow where they want it. So we look at 1 Corinthians 15 which is a second scripture that covers Jesus' return and, and what we will be like during that time. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting in 51, he said, Listen, this is Paul talking, Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep. In other words, we will not all die. 
but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for that trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then what is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul describes what will happen to all believers during our trip upward to meet Jesus in the air. He says it twice, in fact, that we will all be changed instantly in the twinkling of an eye. As most of you know, I'm kind of a science nerd, especially studying what I'm studying. There is about one inch distance between the front of your iris to the back of your retina in your eye. We talk about the twinkling of an eye, we're talking about something that is very, very fast. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. At that speed, it takes 1 64th of a nanosecond to travel one inch, faster than I can snap my fingers. That's how fast we'll be changed. Instantly, giving a new body. One, if you're in the grave, you'll be one minute dead, next minute, boom, resurrected body. If you've been sad your whole life or dealing with, with depression, the next moment your tears will be wiped away forever. And you'll experience fullness of joy. Maybe you experience pain every day, or illness, or sickness. The next, no more pain ever. Sickness or illness. You'll be indestructible. But there's even more. Consider for a moment, when we talk about Superman, we're going to be greater than Superman. In the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus, he can manipulate his molecules somehow to walk through a wall. He can instantaneously transport himself from place to place, supernaturally. Even though he existed in this physical body, he could cause his physical body to do things that are impossible for us to do today. So I think in our resurrected bodies, you could just be sitting around one day going, huh, I wonder what the weather's like in Pluto. Let's go look. Boom, standing on Pluto. Cold. That's how the weather is, cold. No air. Sun's way out there. I think I'm going to go to Tahiti. Let's go. Tahiti. I'm there. You're going to be able to do those kind of things. Isn't that incredible? That's something to look forward to. And when Jesus returns, we get those bodies in a 64th of a nanosecond. The third passage that covers our conditions at Christ's returns is in Revelation chapter 20. It said that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now all believers who are died, who have died, will be resurrected at Christ's return. If you're still alive when this happens, this will be the first moment you get to see your deceased loved ones again. Right there, hanging out together, eternal reunion in the clouds. 
So you say, well, when is this going to take place? We've been talking about it, alluding to it, and hinting toward it. Well, there's three popular answers to this. One group, and all of them can make scriptural arguments, but I believe the first one the most, and that is the pre-tribulation rapture. This group believes, what we believe here in the Assemblies of God, that Jesus will return twice. One at the beginning of the tribulation where he comes in the clouds to take the saints to heaven and spare us from the judgment. And then at the end, he comes physically all the way back down to judge the world. And that's what our fellowship, the Assemblies of God, believes. That at some point, at the beginning of the tribulation or right before it starts, we get to go be with Jesus. Now, there's a second group of, of people who believe in the Bible, but they have a different view of this, which is called the mid-trib rapture. That sometime before the Antichrist sacrifices that pig in the temple, that God will be, will be taken out of the world before the huge persecution comes. When you look at Revelation, you have the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, and the trumpet judgments. I said those in the wrong order. The seals, trumpets, bowls. So the seals and the trumpets are partial judgments, but the bowl judgments are total judgments. So they believe that we can exist during some of that time. I still believe that the rapture will be take place at the beginning of the, of the tribulation. I kind of hold the door open for this option just a little bit and... Just because I think we can see the first, maybe first four seals or something, but before real judgment starts to fall, God's going to get us out of here. And the reason I believe that God's going to get us out of here is because there are multiple examples within the Bible of God doing just that, removing his people before total judgment begins to fall. Uh, our two examples that I'll bring up are of God removing before utter destruction are Noah's flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember those, that God got his people out of there before he lowered the boom uh, in that case, in those cases. So I leave that door open just slightly, just for that reason. Now the third group of people believe in the post-tribulation rapture, believes that we go through the whole thing. Their view is that we'll be protected in the midst of the judgment. Just as pre Jesus prayed in John 17, 15, when he said, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I think that this one is grasping at straws. I'm not going to go into it too much. I don't think that God um, will want us as Bible-believing Christians to go through the tribulation. I believe, in fact, the rapture is the first reward of the Bible-believing Christian in eternity. That is, that is our reward for living for him. So I'm not going to go into that too much, um, but that is what they believe, that we go through and then God separates them at the end. So because of all of this, because that we get to look forward to the resurrected body, we get to look forward to Jesus coming in the clouds, we get to look forward to all these incredible things. We have something to focus on in this life when it gets when the the darkness is coming you know we 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 worry we fret we freak out when we watch the news we we start to to stomp and kick and 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 get all worked up over it you know what though 
God has it in control. We've seen here that God has predicted everything that is coming to pass. Jesus himself said that there will come a time when the love of many will grow cold. And that is what we are seeing today. We, we, he predicted that many will fall away. That is what we are seeing today. He predicted all of these things would happen. And that is why he gives us this incredible truth to hold on to and to look forward to so that our focus can remain on him. The final thing I want to say about the rapture and about this incredible future we have coming, it's only for people who have surrendered to Jesus and made him Lord, God, Savior, and King. It's not about being a member of this church or any other church. It's not about the family you were born into. It's about what you do with Jesus Christ. Is He your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted Him with your eternity? Have you repented of your sin and doing your best to live for Him now? That's what is, we're going to be judged on. And that is what's going to qualify us to participate in this glorious event. Let's all rise. There is a truth in Scripture. Everyone here gets to meet Jesus. Everyone who has ever lived gets to meet Jesus. But there's also another truth. You will either meet Him as your Savior and Lord, or you will meet Him as your judge. We talked a moment about the first resurrection. There's a second resurrection that occurs before a great white throne. On that great white throne sits Jesus. If you appear at this resurrection, your guilt has already been determined. And the verdict is going to be the same for everyone. That verdict will be that God will honor your choice you made here in life to live apart from Him for all eternity. In a place of awful torture and torment. Friends, I don't want anyone to go there. So everybody, just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. If you need Jesus to come into your life and bring that kind of salvation, just tell Him. It's not a fancy prayer. It's not a, a formal ceremony. It's you looking to Jesus and saying, I need you. I've messed up my life. I've done things that were evil. I've done things that, that I know didn't please you. Forgive me. Wash me. Make me yours. I make you my Lord, God, Savior, and King. And if you pray a prayer like that, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life and you have no fear of that second resurrection. And you're ready to go on the first. So Father, I just pray, Lord, that all of us will take heart and encouragement through what we've learned today. 
I ask, Father, that it be our, our guiding principle in life, that we will occupy until you come, that we will live our lives right now with this anticipation of meeting you one day. And not only live our lives that way, but to tell others of the saving knowledge and truth of Jesus Christ. Father God, I thank you for your people. I ask for your blessing to be upon them. Use them to spread the gospel this week. I ask this in your name. Amen.